This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. On behalf of the National Association of Broadcasters, the Association of Local Radio and Television Broadcasters in the United States, we want to thank this committee and its chairman for its ongoing efforts to establish an international instrument that will provide effective protection for broadcasting organizations around the world. In particular, we want to voice our support for the proposal of the United States contained in SECR 37-7. This proposal incorporates both strong protection for broadcasting organizations against the unauthorized retransmissions of their signals and the necessary flexibility to implement this protection in ways that reflect differences in domestic markets and legal systems throughout the world. Those who track the digital policy implications of new treaties are accustomed to being kept largely in the dark. Most treaties are negotiated behind closed doors with no text made available until after a deal has been reached. Yet there is a treaty with enormous implications for the internet, copyright, and broadcasting that has been hidden in plain sight for the better part of two decades. This week, the World Intellectual Property Organization a UN-based agency focused on IP issues, resumes discussion on a draft broadcasting treaty that could extend the term of copyright for broadcast content, create a wedge between broadcasters and internet streaming services, and even result in new restrictions on the use of streaming video. To explain what's at stake, I'm joined on the podcast by Jamie Love. For anyone familiar with international intellectual property issues and WIPO, Jamie Love and his organization, Knowledge Ecology International, is a long-standing fixture. From the early days of access to medicines during the AIDS crisis to removing copyright barriers for the visually impaired, he's been a formidable presence on public interest IP issues for many years, and he joins me to discuss how WIPO works and where the proposed broadcasting treaty stands. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. So this podcast is slated to drop on April the 1st, which of course is not only April Fool's Day, but also the start of another week of copyright meetings. It's known as the SCCR at WIPO that takes place in Geneva. I'd like to talk a bit about the meeting and in particular that proposed treaty on broadcasting that few have heard of. But before we get to that, WIPO isn't necessarily a household name for a lot of people. So maybe we can start with you telling us what is WIPO and what does it do? The World Intellectual Property Organization is the specialized UN agency to deal with issues relating to intellectual property. It wasn't always a, uh, a UN agency. It wasn't created initially as a, as a UN agency. It was, it was created as a, more of a private organization that was dealing with intellectual property. And over time, it, 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 it had ambitions to become uh, a, not only a, a treaty banking body and a technical assistance body, but to have the to have the uh, legitimacy of a UN agency. So uh, th- there was a negotiation to allow that to happen, and so it you know now it's it's become a an organization which it's governed by uh, by governments around the world. Is it just governments that attend, or can anyone participate? WIPO used to be a fairly closed uh, institution. The first time we tried to uh, 
get accreditation uh, at, at one of these meetings on, on the copyright was uh, we were rejected uh, uh, by the, uh, uh, we were not allowed to attend. Uh, but that was, that, that eventually has changed quite a bit. And it's gone from being a fairly difficult place to attend and to obtain credentials, become one of the most open institutions within the UN system. In order to attend a meeting of a negotiation, you have to, you have to, uh, you have to get a, uh, you have to be on a delegation of a non-governmental organization. But there's several groups that have, have obtained accreditation, which has become fairly easy in WIPO. And you can, if you reach out to people that uh, groups like EFF or KI or uh, academic, uh, some academic groups that, uh, that like one that Sean Flynn's associated with that have uh, credentials that you can, you can usually get on their delegation and you can attend. We've had, we've, uh, we've also have an organization called the, uh, uh, called the Civil Society uh, Coalition, which is run by several different groups. And they, one of the services they provide is they allow people to want to attend the meetings to show up and uh, as and be credentialed under that body. So in addition to attending the meeting, they have a right to speak from the floor. So you mentioned that treaty making is a big part of WIPO and, and talked about the more open approach. Some people may be familiar with some of the treaties. So the WIPO Copyright Treaty, for example, that sparked the U.S. DMCA as well as Canadian reforms in 2012. Mr. Speaker, in 1996, Canada signed the WIPO treaties in order to, to join the intellectual property movement in order to protect Canada's copyright holders uh, across this country. And pursuant to Standing Order 32-2, I'm very pleased and honoured to table in both official languages uh, treaties entitled 1, the World Intellectual Property Organization Copyright Treaty done at Geneva on December 20, 1996, and the World Intellectual Property Organization Performances and Phonograms Treaty done at Geneva on December 20, 1996. More recently, the Marrakesh Treaty for the Visually Impaired. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, today I, I'm pleased to report that my work for the United Nations and the World Intellectual Organization has put the final touches on an international treaty that promises to end the global book famine, a pat that means that millions of people in the world who are blind or visually impaired will be able to read books in accessible formats. But on the agenda for this week is a broadcasting treaty. I wonder if you might tell us a bit about the origins of, of that treaty. Well, the, um, if, uh, the broadcast treaty will be one of a couple of different things they talk about, but it's the most it's the most it's the most important part of the negotiation because it's one that's most likely to move into a diplomatic conference. When this treaty was uh, really proposed some several years ago, uh, it, it really became a thing after the 1996 WIPO copyright treaties were passed because those were perceived as an updating of the rights of copyright holders, and then later uh, and uh, you know producers of phonographs. And then, more, you know, more more recently, performers, you, you've seen these updates or these modifications in these older treaties like the Berne Convention uh, and elements of the, of the Rome Convention were updated. But the rights of broadcasters were left out of those agreements. And so the broadcasters uh, have, have organized for, well, it's, it's, it's almost 20 years now uh, where they've organized to try and 
get a treaty that addresses the rights that they have in the Rome Convention, but but with a lot of modifications. I mean, they have rights that are in the Rome Convention that are, uh, you know, I think more than 80 countries have signed a, a, an agreement that they all honored. But uh, uh, there hasn't been any any modification of that in terms of the of the multilateral treaties. So th- that's what this negotiation is about. It's a it's it's a bizarre negotiation because the the focus of the treaty is so is on what they call so called traditional broadcasters. That would be radio and television, but they've ex- expanded that to mean satellite broadcasting as well as broadcasting that uh, in in many versions of the treaty that take place over cable television platforms. And uh, they also, at the same time, say that they want it to be future-proof. And so then there's this big argument about exactly what happens to the treaty as it relates to the internet, to what extent do the rights that they talk about uh, uh, going to uh, affect the way that the internet's used? Uh, And particularly, are they creating a layer of rights that has this persistent uh, durable quality of 20 years or 50 years after a transmission takes place on the internet that would require you to clear rights not only with the copyright holders, but also some entity which had transmitted the information um, either uh, you know, through, through traditional broadcasting or through re, some re, retransmission of it over the internet. So let, let me try to unpack that. We're talking about an area where there is already protection for broadcasters. You mentioned the Rome Treaty, and there has now been literally two decades of discussions, often on negotiations, with what is described by some as an updating of those rules. If we're talking about two decades, we're talking about a, a broadcasting world that didn't have a whole lot of internet-based broadcasting when they started. But if they're going to future-proof it, as you suggest, the goal, I assume, for many is to incorporate internet-based broadcasting, however defined within the ambit of this proposed treaty. That, that's really one of the, 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 the big tensions. The, the, if, you, if you think of the, what's happening right now in terms of where the technology is going, the business model is going, the internet originated streaming of video services like uh, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Spotify, uh, uh, different things that are uh, Pandora, things that are happening, those things are replacing traditional broadcasting. They're, they're winning the competition. They're just better services. People like them better. You have more control over what's going on. The pricing is more favorable. You have uh, better content in a lot of cases. And so uh, you have the traditional broadcasters wanting to have an intellectual property right that they get that the these new services don't get. That's sort of one of the fictions of the, uh, that's one of the controversial areas of the negotiation. They say, you know, BBC should get the right, but Netflix should not get the right. There's that, those kind of conversations taking place. Even And and you have BBC saying, we want to get this the right for the same thing that Netflix get does, but we don't want Netflix to get the same right. As if somehow there's some legal way to discriminate against the, new services, which are actually winning a competition in terms of, uh, you know, where, where market shares are moving. So it's a, um, uh, the, it's almost as if the problem they're trying to solve is trying to protect these older services that people don't like as well as the newer services. The newer services don't have any Rome rights. They don't have any of these, 
these transmitting rights that they're talking about. And the older services, uh, particularly, the, you know, if they operate in countries like uh, European countries where they have directives on this, where they, they really uh, have been fairly aggressive in terms of how they interpreted the rights for broadcasters, they have these set of related rights. Now, I don't think the average person really paid much attention to the broadcaster right because there wasn't a lot of copying content from over-the-air radio and over-the-air television and using those 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 reproductions of things in the same way that people use when they get things digitally. When the people get things digitally, uh, they're 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 actually repurposing the information quite a bit more. And they're and they're demanding to have more access to older versions of things. And and so that is changing the way you think about the importance of this related right. I don't know how to explain it exactly, except to say that um, uh, whatever the rights were the, for over-the-air television back in 1961, 1970, you know, in the early years of the Rome Convention, I don't think really really made any difference whatsoever in terms of the actual end users of, you know, the people that listen to broadcast or listen to music on the radio it didn't really affect them very much. It may affect like a bar owner or a restaurant who had to pay money to a broadcaster in addition to having to pay money to uh, a performer or an author or something like that. But it didn't really affect the person that was listening to the, to, to, to the radio broadcast or the television broadcast. But what they're talking about now would make a big change because people actually take uh, contact that's, uh, 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 that they receive digitally and they, they make copies of it and they comment, they do commentary on it. They, uh, they include it in, in, in sort of new works, which are like, uh, I mean, sometimes it's documentary, sometimes it's something so short, nobody would really call it, call it a, uh, a documentary, but it has to do with reacting to information you get and responding to it and maybe provide an analysis or rebuttal views or something like that. So all of those things uh, are much more problematic with the, the, the rights that they've proposed because you'd, you'd be faced with clearing rights from multiple parties. And it's, it's all happening at the same time that you see a big expansion of the enforcement mechanisms for copying contact. Like, for example, Article 13 in the European uh, Copyright Debate. There, there's this effort to sort of automate and using computers uh, uh, to 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 make it much easier for copyright owners to identify works that they think infringe their rights and to exercise some 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 control over it. What's the problem that they're trying to solve with this issue? Well, the official the, the, the official story is that they're trying to address piracy of of signals, and the story is that. If, if something's being streamed in real time and they don't have acquired sufficient contractual rights from the copyright owner, they may have a hard time legally uh, exercising a right against, against the uh, unauthorized streaming of the content. That's, that's the official story. I mean, it's really hard to get details of where this actually is a problem, but mo- many people sort of accept, well, there may be some, some issue that's related to that. So the United States, in their negotiations, they proposed a very uh, temporary right that uh, the broadcasters could use in these cases uh, so that the people that signed the treaty would agree to enforce the broadcasters right in kind of real time for streaming. As the U.S. delegation stated at the General Assembly's in September, 
and building on discussions in the most recent sessions of the SCCR, we have given considerable thought to ways to bridge the gaps between different positions on the draft broadcasters treaty. And last week, as several delegates have noted, we submitted a new US proposal, SCCR 37-7. And I am pleased to, prevent, to present that proposal today to explain its purpose and explain how it relates to uh, the other provisions in the chair's text. Now, it has often been remarked, including today, uh, that the SCCR has been discussing the proposed broadcasters treaty for many years now. During that time, we have without question, as a group, developed a better understanding of the issues. But we still have not achieved agreement on the fundamental issues of objectives, specific scope, and object of protection. But then there's a big debate about what happens after the broadcast has been like what they call post-fixation rights, when the, when the broadcast has been uh, copied by somebody, then then does a right sort of disappear or does it, does it, does it continue? The U.S. would like it to effectively disappear after the broadcast or maybe within some sort of short amount of time. But the broadcasters are asking for as many as, as 50 years of intellectual property protections that's separate from the copyright owner's protection. And, and in fact, one of the issues that came up in the negotiations, well, what happens if the copyright expires during the 50-year period? Would you then truncate the protection uh, so that if, if copyrights, you know, cease to affect, uh, cease to be in effect, would you still get the protection? And uh, UK and other countries were quite clear in saying, "Look, at, um, uh, the protection will be 50 years from each broadcast, irregardless of what happens to copyright." In other words, it's, it's designed to apply even if there is no copyright in the original broadcast, or if the copyright has expired in terms of copyright, there could still be a, a broadcaster, right? So, so we vested, or this proposes to vest an entirely new copyright. There's a use case, perhaps on real-time streaming, that we've got at least one delegation in the United States saying you can address by having a limited right that deals specifically with that issue. But broadcasters themselves are claiming, no, 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 we want something that could run for decades up to 50 years, you're saying, even if the underlying work itself is no longer in copyright, it's effectively a term extension that doesn't even accrue to the copyright owner, but rather to the broadcaster themselves. I get why a broadcaster might like that. That feels like a big windfall. And as you noted earlier, provides a competitive advantage for broadcasters over some of the internet services. But are there countries that are on board that are supportive of the kinds of proposals broadcasters are putting forward? I think the U.S. is has been relatively isolated in these conversations. They used to be aligned more with uh, Brazil, with India, with Iran, with different countries. Over time, a lot of countries have allowed the U.S. to be uh, seen as spending its own political capital to kind of hold this thing up. And they were uh, not, not anxious to encounter, uh, uh, have a confrontation with your domestic uh, broadcasters. I mean, broadcasters have more political influence than copyright owners do in countries. People may, you know, talk like how much they love, you know, this singer, or that singer, or that copyright, but that's nothing compared to how politicians respond to people that own radio and television news programs. So in um, in India, you saw 
the broadcasters work with a, a network called the Z Network, which is very close to uh, uh, Mahdi and in, uh, in India. And then in Brazil, you saw the broadcasters work with O Globo uh, to flip the uh, Brazilian positions. And so in all these different countries, the political influence of the broadcasters has been used to neutralized opposition. Also, in the early years of the negotiation, uh, the, the, the um, uh, unions for the performers and the organizations representing them in the negotiations, and even the recorded music industry uh, and the collection societies like CSAC were really bitter opponents of the broadcasters because they, uh, right, because they thought it was a derogation of, of, of their right. They thought that all... Uh, you know, all rights should come out of a contract with the creative people, and not, and not, and not, not just be automatic like this. Something you could get without having to pay for it or anything. And uh, they thought that they would force them to lose lose also some revenue to these entities who were merely transmitting information. Uh, and uh, that that is that has sort of disappeared very recently because of uh, many many of the the organizations like the recording industry, for example. There's companies that are um, uh, represented in the recording, uh, recording music that also have broadcast uh, facilities. And, and also the definition of what constitutes broadcast is not really well understood by people. So some people think the broadcaster is the person that, that, that has the uh, antennas out that broadcast, for example, a, uh, uh, some type of a radio signal into your, into, into, into your car or to your house or something, or runs cables through cable television. They think it's the people that maintain the wires, but that's not really who the primary beneficiary of the treaty is. The primary beneficiary would be the people, what they call schedule the content. So that would mean that it would be the discovery channel, not the local cable operator that would be the, the beneficiary. So if you look at who owns the major cable channels, it's a, it's a, it's a much smaller group. And there are a lot of foreigners involved. Like for, for television and radio, they're mostly... Traditionally, they were national entities because it used to be illegal in a lot of countries for a foreign a foreign investor to own a radio or television uh, station. It used to be illegal, for example, for uh, any foreign entity to own a radio or television station in the United States. But the uh, the channels are very multilateral. So you have big companies like Vivendi, uh, News Corp, uh, Time Warner, uh, you know, you know, Paramount, other groups that have. Um, lots of these cable channels. And so then they, they, the, the, the agreement was essentially written in such a way so they would benefit. It also allows you to really almost have a permanent archiving of the, I mean, a, a, a permanent evergreening of, of the rights in certain kinds of works. If you, if you first broadcast a, uh, a video, for example, over someone that qualifies as a broadcaster, and then of all subsequent redistributions of the work, are licensed from that original content, then you'd have to wait 50 years before uh, all the copies that were made on that um, transmission uh, had expired. But if you, over that 50 year period, if there was like, you know, 30 years later, if there was another broadcast of the same film and then all subsequent broadcasts were made on that more recent copy, then you, you get like another 50 years starting from the most recent broadcast. So unless you hang on to a work for 50 years, and have the technology to actually access something that went out in a digital format 50 years ago, you're going to be probably accessing some, something that was broadcast more recently. 
you know, Jamie, this sounds like like a pretty remarkable story, both of uh, the the effects of ongoing global lobbying with some very powerful interests, and uh, I think a, a rather stunning layering of additional rights on top of copyrights that don't really accrue to to the creators, but yet. Uh, will have the effect, as you suggest, of locking things down for some time. The, the description of countries that restrict foreign ownership of broadcasters, the merging of broadcasters along with cable operators or other distributors feels a lot like the Canadian market, to be candid. It sounds as if you're describing Canada. Canada has been an active player at WIPO, recently signing on to several IP treaties. Well, Canada wishes to position itself as a leader in global IP, and these three agreements really do a fantastic job of putting us into that milieu. And what's also very important for us is it creates a very efficient way for Canadian IP holders to protect their rights, and also for us to create a very safe and useful environment for foreign investors in Canada. I'm wondering where it stands on this treaty. Has it had much to say? in the various meetings you've attended during these negotiations? Well, there was a time when Canada was quite focused on the retransmission right issue. And that's because, as I'm sure you know, that there were a fair amount of cases in Canada where people were taking a over-the-air broadcast, for example, out of a a border state, and then they were retransmitting them uh, to places that didn't have their own broadcast, uh, particularly television, they didn't have the same kind of capacity they had there. And so that was initially was a big focus of the Canadian negotiators. I have not heard as much from the Canadian negotiators in recent years, ever since Bruce uh, Couchman left the, uh, the, uh, uh, as a negotiator. So I couldn't really tell you that much about their position. But what gets us from meet these SCCR meetings to the next step, which I presume is a diplomatic conference to try to finalize a treaty. Is, is that indeed the next step? And what's the likelihood that we see the delegates say, we're now ready for that final negotiation? Well, the, ma- many of the people that were showing up in the negotiation before have stopped going coming because it's just taken so long. They just figured it's never going to get out the door. They think that it's, its likelihood must be zero because it's, you know, otherwise it would have happened already. And I think they're wrong about that. It's, it's several times been very close to mo- moving into a diplomatic conference. Now, the decision to go into diplomatic conference is traditionally made uh, in September, early October, during the General Assembly of WIPO, which happens once a year. When That's a, the high-level meeting of WIPO. In terms of governance, it takes place once a year. And, they, and, 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 and WIPO, can, uh, the General Assembly is, is, the, is the entity which can authorize a diplomatic conference. But what comes out of these SCCR will be a recommendation to the General Assembly, uh, some sense of whether or not they've reached a sufficient compromise among the parties uh, for, in, a, in a terms of reference for, for how it can move forward. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of are we going to dodge a bullet, you know, sort of questions going into each of the SCCR, because I, I think we've been on the verge of going to a diplomatic conference several times in the last couple of years. And, uh, uh, and, and I think we are, that's where we stand right now. Now we, we may, they, they may not have resolved everything at this point. We hope that they don't, we hope countries are, are looking at some of the issues, by the way, I mean, one way that, uh, uh, I think people have to understand this is going to just, I think, go way beyond traditional broadcasters. I don't think it's sustainable that traditional broadcasters get this transmission, right. And you don't give it to anyone else because, 
the other entities are becoming more politically powerful every day because they're gaining market share. They're, you know, they have more money. Uh, they can lobby more and things like that. So uh, it's unlikely that you'll have a right that'll kind of wither on the vine of irrelevance because, you know, over the air TV and radio will disappear. Instead, I think what you'll find is they'll have some ridiculous right that will then be, uh, uh, then you'll see uh, these big, big corporations. I mean, one of the biggest beneficiaries is going to be uh, Google because Google has YouTube, which is a massive uh, platform in terms of content. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, all they would really have to do in some version of the treaty was just, uh, if they haven't already done it, it's just to buy, um, uh, you know, some, some radio station. Pandora did that at one point in order to get a compulsory license. They bought a, um, they bought a, a, a radio station uh, in the United States in a rural area. It was not very expensive. And uh, you can just buy a radio or television station anywhere on the planet, you know, any, any, any country that's part of the treaty, and that qualifies you. Your whole company then becomes a broadcasting organization. So even if you're, most of the activity is not even originated as a regular broadcast, uh, in some versions of the treaty, you would be able to get this right. So I, 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 I just not really. I, I think it's it, it, the, the most likely impact if this passes is is a lot of pressure to give every webcaster some intellectual property rights for just transmitting information. And I just think this is a just 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 a really huge threat in terms of the way the internet functions right now. Jamie, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast and uh, good luck this week in Geneva. Thanks, Michael. The WIPO SCCR meeting is scheduled to run from April 1st to the 5th. If the delegations believe the broadcasting treaty is nearly ready for final consideration, approval for a diplomatic conference could come by the fall. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at P-O-Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Law Bites Pod or Michael Geist at M. Geist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.